Uh, some of y'all probably already know this because you've been members a while. Um, others, I'm sure, don't. Uh, we've had, any, actually, anyone want to guess? How many senior pastors has this church had? Had, including me. <laughs> All of them. Good answer. I found six, not counting interims. I found six. C.C. Matheny was technically the planter, uh, first church pastor, was there about a year. Then Guy Johnson came in and took the reins for a long time. After Guy Johnson came, uh, Gilstrap for some time, married Pat and Eddie, right? And uh, then uh, came along Danny Black, then came along Rick Brewer, and came along Old Dale. Um, and to be honest, that's pretty good for 56 years of ministry. Six pastors, that's not bad, right? Pretty good. A lot of churches can't say that. Most churches are in the double digits because, you know, they've had some, some, some turnover. Uh, it's something to rejoice in. We haven't had a lot of, uh, a lot of pastor wars over the years. But um, I've learned that the story is not the same when it comes to worship leaders. Um, apparently, in the heyday, we've, we've, uh, we've been through them. Uh, and to be honest, I don't love the term worship leader. Eddie and I have talked about this, right? Um, it, I think the elders, the pastors lead the saints in worship. So this, you know, but I understand what, the, what you mean, right? Usually when we say worship leader, that's the guy who is driving the train. He is, or she is, um, often the one who leads the music. Um, and I've only been here, like I said, about five years um, but I've heard from people who've been here much longer. Eddie could probably tell you more. He, he was a worship leader many decades ago. Um, maybe not many decades. I'm, I'm, I shouldn't be so mean, Eddie. But it's been a, a couple decades ago, right? Um, and, uh, and now um, he actually just celebrated seven years as worship leaders, um, as our worship leader. And so I'm really thankful. I just want to give you a little round of applause. You've done a great job, brother, in seven years. And I've seen you grow a lot in, in my five years. Um, but we love to talk about the good things in our past, you know, the revivals, the baptisms, the uh, mission trips, the building of buildings, you know, and the things that we've accomplished. Um, but behind the scenes, there was a day in which no musical instruments besides the piano and the organ, right, were allowed up in here. <laughs> uh, there was a day... When bringing guitar in here, you know, you'd think you were, you were, you know, cussing in church <laughs> if you bring a guitar in here. Um, worship leaders came and went. Some were puffed up with pride. Some were tossed about like rag dolls over our preferences. There was a time in which hymn books were traded out for a projector. Lord only knows who skipped church that Sunday when the change came. Now, a lot of these things are decades old. Why bring them up again? Because even though these were former days and former people, we are likely to relive their mistakes and walk in their footsteps if we don't learn from what happened. Right? Praise be to God, things have drastically changed, haven't they? They've changed a lot. Um, <laughs> I don't think Gilstrap would be too happy with my drums back there, would he? Uh, <clears throat> but, but things have changed. Things have changed. 
But I'm afraid the worship wars still go on today, right? And we've identified this is a key area we want to grow in. We're not going to be at war with one another over how God is worshipped in this place. We're going to worship him as he tells us to worship him. And so if we're going to do that well, we've got to understand what worship is. And so to teach on it for the next few moments, I've got five myths that I want to uncover. Five myths. Um, the first myth is this one. Church is something we attend. Church is something we attend. Let me paint the picture for you, right? It's Saturday. You got your groceries for the week. You did some chores around the house. You did some yard work, got a few things done. You decided to go get pizza for dinner. You binge watch a few of your favorite TV shows. The next thing you know, it's 10 o'clock at night, and you're like, I need to go to bed. And then you're brushing your teeth, and you're like, I got church tomorrow. Oh, well, hope I get there on time. Right, and you go to bed. Now, the real problem, I think, with our understanding of church is not that we think it's a building. It's not that we think it's really this event that we go to or a social club. I think the issue is that we don't see ourselves as the primary responsible party for how God gets worship on earth. You are the primary responsible party for how God receives worship on earth. He has angels worshiping him all day long, but he wants man to worship him on the earth, the saints, his church. And quite frankly, we just don't care that much. And if we don't care that much, what does that say about our worship? We ought to start preparing for Sunday if we want to sing well far before Sunday gets there. Maybe Saturday, maybe Friday, maybe Thursday, maybe Wednesday, right? Maybe Monday. We want to start preparing. H.B. Uh, Charles has a great quote. If it costs nothing for us to give it, then it isn't a sacrifice. If it costs nothing... For us to give it, it isn't a sacrifice. Many of us have grown accustomed to thinking that we only give to the church what's most convenient, what impacts us the least. And so what happens when we show up on Sundays at 10 o'clock? Our attitude reflects that, right? We're kind of flippant, and God gets cheap worship that we didn't really sacrifice to give. Our theology of the church and our whole mindset of who we are and why we exist plays the biggest role in our corporate worship on the Lord's Day. What is the church? What does the Bible say? Acts 14, 27. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Here are people, new believers, being gathered together as a people called the church, doing what? Declaring the glory of God. So what's a church? The gathered ones who've been called out of their sin and into light, proclaiming the glories of God. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus, both their Lord and ours. Those who are being sanctified are the ones who are the church, who are called to be saints together. Ephesians 3.10, the church, or sorry, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. We reveal God's glory through the scriptures, things that even angels can't understand. 
In Ephesians 5.23, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. So here's the parallel truth to our myth. Church is the visual body of Christ. Church is the visual body of Christ. Now, I'm guessing you guys don't really give your body parts an option as to whether or not they're going to go about the day with you. <laughs> Hand, you've had a hard time lately. I'm going to leave you home today. You know, you've worked hard. Why don't you stay home today, Hand? Each member joined together in the body points toward the head who is Christ. If we are not enjoined properly together, we will not function properly. And the head who is Christ will not be followed and therefore will not be worshipped. It's time for us to stop thinking about church as something we flippantly show up to and give cheap worship to, and rather something in which we are the primary responsible party for giving God worship on the earth. This is why we gather. We are the church. Myth number two. The Holy Spirit is a feeling. The Holy Spirit is a feeling. We've heard it a hundred times, right? I just don't feel the Holy Spirit. Yeah, the worship this morning was just really missing that, that oomph. You know what I'm saying? Something wasn't there. I guess the Holy Spirit decided not to show up today. Nobody lifted their hands. Nobody said hallelujah. I guess the Holy Spirit didn't like that hymn we sang. You know, I just want to find a church that's full of the Holy Spirit. Now this isn't a spiritual problem that people are having. This is an emotional problem that people are having. Who taught us that excitement was an indicator of the Holy Spirit's presence? You want me to tell us? <laughs> I think some preachers got together and decided to misinterpret like the majority of the book of Acts. And instead of a, a theology of the Spirit, we developed a theology of emotionalism and excitement. And so, yeah, the Holy Spirit was given at Pentecost, and it was really exciting, right? But this does not mean the Holy Spirit is an emotion. That's blasphemy. We're going to talk about the truth in a moment. You know, I've, I've talked about this book I've been reading for a long time now. Ichabod Spencer and these, uh, these pastoral writings, these interactions he has with people. Y'all are probably getting tired of it, but man, it has impacted me. He, he writes about these two young men that were in his church, teenagers. They decided to skip his service one evening to go to a local revival. A lot of people were going. They got invited. And he was from the 1800s in Vermont. Revivals were all over the place. He preached at revivals. But this was the time of revival. And so these two young men go to this revival service. And they come back, and they have all this to report. Everybody was on their knees, wailing, crying out to God, you know, everybody in the whole church got saved. We were one of them. You know, we, we got saved and we need to be baptized now. And we, we've experienced something like we've never experienced ever before. Not, nothing against you, preacher, but we've just never experienced anything like this. And he said, okay. A couple Sundays went by. The fruit began to wane on the vine. As the men grew older... He records that they fell away from Christ, and their great excitement was only that, great excitement. Wow. This is a serious danger, because if we replace emotionalism with the work of the Holy Spirit, we actually end up worshiping ourselves. Worship can be very exciting, in a lot of ways should be, 
But the excitement is not the essence of our worship. The excitement is not the essence of the Holy Spirit. If excitement was the essence of worship, everything we do would be entirely dependent upon what excites us, right? Well, I didn't like that song very much, regardless of how doctrinally sound it was or saturated in Scripture. Let's never sing it again. Well, I didn't care for all the prayer in the service today. I found it boring. Let's pray less. Did that preacher actually tell me to confess my sin at the beginning of the service? What a way to stifle the spirit, huh? Family, what I'm describing is man-centered worship. It's based on our preferences, and it makes the Holy Spirit, or it mistakes the Holy Spirit for our own wicked hearts, which are very different. Here's some Bible Matthew 28, you know what it says. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Acts 5.32, they are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. The Holy Spirit is a gift from God at salvation. God Himself, uh, did, I, did I do the truth yet? I don't think I did. The Holy Spirit is God. <laughs> That's the parallel truth. The Holy Spirit is God. When we are regenerated, converted, made alive together with Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit, our down payment for our coming age, that we will indeed dwell with Christ forever. He's our comforter. He's our advocate. That's what we sing in the doxology now. The kingdom of God, Romans 14, 17. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And then Paul tells Timothy how to preach and how to guard the deposit. How do you do it? 2 Timothy 1.14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. The Holy Spirit is given to us not for great emotional shows, but to guard truth and to protect us from sin and to give us gifts. Hebrews 2, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to His will. These gifts are used for service and edification in the body of Christ, not for emotional shows. So here's the litmus test for a Spirit-filled worship service. Were Christians there, yes or no? Yes, move on. Did they worship God? Yes. Okay. If the answer is yes to both of those questions, the Holy Spirit was there. Why? Because one, you can't be a Christian without the Holy Spirit, and two, you can't worship God without the Holy Spirit. Were Christians there? Did they worship God? So what this means is, if something doesn't sit right with you about an element of our worship or something that was done, instead of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, blaming Him for it, Maybe we need to check and see if there's sin in our hearts that prevented us from worshiping God the way He deserves. Maybe we're more in love with revivalism than we are with the Bible. Maybe we've replaced true God-centered worship with man-centered excitement. I think the Holy Spirit of God does a fine job regardless of goosebumps. Amen? So let's stop adding to his job description. Let's let him do his work his way. Myth number three. Singing is synonymous with worship. I need to move faster. If you were going to describe our worship service, how would you do it? I think most people would do it this way. All right, I want you to come to church. Here's what we do. 
Well, first we worship. Then the preacher preaches. Then we all get out by 11.55, right, to beat the Methodists to the buffet. You know what I'm saying? That's, that's, that's the three elements to the worship service. That's how most people would describe it. The problem is that we've defined worship as that part where people sang and whatever music was there, right? So worship might as well be a Taylor Swift concert. Everybody knows the words. They're singing along, right? What's the difference? The church gathered together singing songs about God is certainly a form of worship. But it's far more than that, right? Worship is far more than that. Both Old and New Testament, the word for worship is used to literally mean bow down, to lie prostrate before something in great honor, to pay homage to the highest degree, to recognize power and authority with sincere reverence and awe. It also implies stewardship and service. So you you can see in some of the, the translations, service or stewardship is synonymous with the word worship. It's kind of funny. We have worship services, worship worships, you know. We have service services. <laughs> it's uh, kind of funny how, how we do that. But um, the point of this is not that we need to get on our bellies in order to worship, right, to lie prostrate. But maybe we do need to challenge our understanding of what we think worship is. The danger here is opposite from the first myth. The first myth was that we don't care enough about God's worship, right? That's, that was the danger there. This, this danger is that we put too much stock into the singing part, right? We begin to believe it's an elevated form of worship that actually outweighs the rest of the things we do. But what does the Bible say? Matthew 2, 2, when the wise men were seeking after the baby Jesus, they said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to sing some songs about him. We've come to worship him. Romans 1.25, when they've, uh, they, be, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they started singing to the creation. No, they started worshiping the creation rather than the creator. Romans 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So here's the parallel truth. Worship is our daily sacrifice of living to the Lord. Worship is our daily sacrifice of living to the Lord. So guess what this means, right? We get to worship God on Mondays and on Tuesdays and on Wednesdays and on Thursdays and on Fridays. We get to worship God 24-7. We get to see and savor the power and authority of God with reverence and awe at all times whenever we want. Pretty cool, huh? We get to do it privately. We get to do it publicly. We get to do it in prayer. We get to do it when we read the Bible. We get to do it when we confess our sins together. We get to do it when we tell someone about Jesus. We get to do it when the pastor gets up to preach God's word to us. We get to do it when we eat. We get to do it when we get, when we drink. We get to do it when we sleep. We get to worship God in all of life. Let's not wait until Sunday at 10 a.m. Myth number four I don't have to sing. I don't have to. Do you sing on Sundays? I'm looking at your faces. Do you sing on Sundays? If you don't, I'd really like to know why. I really would. I think there are two common reasons. One, I'm just not musical, right? It's not in my blood. I'm not related to Earl Scruggs like half the other people around here, you know? <laughs> uh, 
It's not in my blood. Or number two, I just don't like the song. I don't really like the music. It's not my thing. When I was talking to Eddie about this service, um, he said, you know, I don't even want to mention the Psalms because that's too obvious. <laughs> he said, it's, it's a dead giveaway. It's too easy, right? Because we do have literally 150 Psalms that point us to the importance of singing with the gathered people to God. So I'm not going to mention the Psalms. It's too easy. <laughs> Acts 16.25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening. Paul and Silas in prison, singing. 1 Corinthians 14, 15, um, Paul says, uh, what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. And here's what, what Paul's doing in this, this, um, this, this letter to the, the Corinthians. Um, they're trying to be all philosophical and separate the spirit and the mind and separate their practice from their thinking. And, um, and he's saying, God desires both, essentially. You sing with your mind and you sing with your mouth. You pray with your mind and you pray with your mouth. Ephesians 5.19, uh, we are called to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with our hearts. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now it's interesting in these passages because our singing is not just directed to God, but also to the people in the room. So that means that our singing on Sunday morning is not a private event. Our singing on Sunday mornings is very public. And of course, Revelation 14.3, they were singing a new song before the throne before the four living creatures and before the elders, no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth, who I take to mean as the church. The church are able to learn the songs of God, and they love to sing the songs of God, and they will continue to sing the songs of God. And they have new songs because we sing about the death, burial, and resurrection and the future coming. One day we'll sing about when he came back. It's going to be a sweet song. So here's the parallel truth. You do have to sing. You do. There are different ways to sing. Not one is right. Not one is wrong. Right? If you catch me singing, I'm probably doing something like this. I sing, how great is our God. Sing with me. Sometimes I'll close my eyes. How great is our God. And you might find uh, another sister or brother in the pews who puts an arm up. It says, how great is our God. Sing with me. You might find Eddie, he does both sometimes. How great is our God. Sing with me. You might find people who don't know the song very well yet. How great is our God. Sing with me. How great. Is one wrong? No. Are all right? Yes. yes. And if you don't know the song, focus on the lyrics. Meditate on what it's saying. Sing with your mind. Try to, to see the theme and the message of the song. And then try to mumble them. Try to open your mouth a little bit when you can. If you don't like the song, ask yourself why you don't like it. If it's because the genre or the style of the music 
repent and sing it anyways. If it's because of a doctrinal concern, talk to the elders. We'd love to hear your concern and then submit to them. Here's one more thing. What do we do when there's a musical interlude, right? The turnaround thing where they're not singing right now and they're trying to get back to the beginning of the next phrase, right? And Alicia and Eddie are trying to make sure they know what they're doing at the same time on the, the turnaround. So is this a time where we get, are they going to mess up? Are they going to mess up? Yeah. Um, what are we supposed to do during that time? Two things I'd recommend you do. The turnaround time in the music is a time to reflect on what you just said. If you just said, how great is our God, and they're doing a turnaround. Do I believe that? Yes, I do. God is amazing. God is great. I'm ready to sing the next verse. The second thing you can do during the turnaround is look around at other people. Because we're called to address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. There's two best spots in the whole church to sit when you sing. First best spot is in the very back because you can watch everybody. The Bible says you're supposed to, right? We need to see each other singing. Yeah. Or up on stage. I get to see everybody. Yeah. The second best spot is at the very front because if it's done right, you can hear a roar of voices behind you yeah. and you know people are singing. Yeah. Don't waste the turnaround. And believe it or not, you're going to love singing in heaven. So you might as well get started now. Number five, let's wrap this thing up. Here's a fun one. We have to have choirs, cantatas, and more cowbell. cowbell. Gotta have it. Not church if we don't have it. Right? We some greedy people. More, more, more. What's an Easter service without the cantata? Come on. Is it even church if we don't have a choir? The children's Christmas play. Do you even love Jesus? What do you mean no children's Christmas play this year? We are firing worship leaders over crap like this all the time. And there's churches in Africa that are beating on drums. And they're singing their hearts out. They don't have any choir robes. Now I want to make something clear with this last one. I am not condemning these things. I think cantatas can be really cool. I think choirs can be awesome. And I think that more cowbells is always a good thing. But uh, <clears throat> I just want to make it clear that these can be wonderful things for the church. They're not altogether bad. There are many who've heard a special song. They were convicted by the Holy Spirit, heard the, the gospel preached through that song, were saved. Many of you grew up singing in choirs. You have the sweetest memories. You learned how to sing from your brothers and sisters in Christ. We often cherish these things deeply in our hearts. But I want to challenge you a little bit just to push. Do you, do you love these things more than our doctrine? Do you love these things more than what the Bible actually prescribes for us at the end of the day? Which is just that we sing. That's the only prescription, right? If we're not singing, then maybe we're in sin. But we're not necessarily in sin if we don't have all the bells and whistles. And you know, if you just walk through the letter of the Corinthians, you can see Paul 
pulling them out of idolatry and trying to show them and strip back all of these things that they've layered on top of Christ where they can't even, even see what true worship is about anymore because of, of, of their sin. He starts in chapter 2, verse 14. He says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But he says, we have the mind of Christ. So in other words, he says, you're acting like natural man. Become spiritual men. You want what your flesh wants. Stop. Put it to death. Become uh, 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 or, or seek to, to be led by the mind of Christ that's been given to you now. And he says in chapter 3 about this preacher worship, right? One says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. And he says, are you not merely being human? You're acting like humans. Do you not know that you've been made immortal? And you now have a spiritual inheritance in the heavenly places? Stop loving the things of man. He says in chapter 12, verse 4, Now there are varieties of gifts. He's, he's trying to get them towards how they behave in worship. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There's a varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Now I actually use this passage to give a, uh, um, an argument for why youth groups aren't bad <laughs> in college. Um, there are varieties of gifts in the church. There are varieties of, of, of different services in the body. Regardless of these different things, it's all about the one spirit who empowers these things to happen. Right? Stop getting tied up in the things and know that it's the spirit who's empowering the, serv- the, the church service. Um, and he, he, he commends them towards love in chapter 13. You know, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant and rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And then finally, kind of this crescendo at the end of the book, when you come together, verse 14, or chapter 14, what then, brothers? What then? After all I've told you, are you going to act like natural men or are you going to act like spiritual men? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. What are we doing? Here's the parallel truth. We have to have grace. We have to have grace. Because there are people in our church who are acting as merely human sometimes. I do it sometimes. I act as merely human. And a lot of times we let that come out when it comes to our worship. So instead of arguing over our future about what our worship will look like and the things we're going to do, let's instead pour out grace towards one another and just commit to worshiping God the way that He deserves to be worshipped.